0: Hi guys and gals, welcome to another episode of the Man Talks podcast where we're dedicated to building better men through conversation, connection, and community. My name is Roger Nairn.
1: And I'm Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades of wisdom delivered right to your ears. On this podcast, we talk about purpose, legacy, love, influence, sex, success, and so much more. Don't forget to leave us a review, subscribe, and join the thousands of other change makers in our community on Facebook or go to www.mantalks.com.
0: So let's bring on today's guest, Genpo Roshi. Dennis Paul Merzel, also known as Genpo Roshi, is a Zen priest, a teacher in both Soto and Rinzai schools of Zen Buddhism, abbot of Kenzion since 1988, and creator of the Big Mind Process in 1999. From his initial awakening in 1971, his purpose and his passion have remained the same, to assist others realize their true nature and to continuously deepen his own practice as well as assisting others in carefully reflecting on this life and clarifying the way. In 1999, he created the Big Mind Process, also known as the Big Mind, Big Heart, which philosopher Ken Wilbur has called arguably the most important and original discovery in the last two centuries of Buddhism. It's broadened and enriched not only the teaching of Zen, but spiritual practices and other traditions as well, enabling thousands of people from all walks of life and religious backgrounds to have an awakening with little or no prior consciousness study. Today, he has written a book called Spitting Out the Bones, a Zen Master's 45 year journey. It's a story of his exhilarating and humbling journey, including the last five years rising from the ashes of his very public fall from grace and a candid exploration of the challenge of bringing the essence of the great tradition he inherited to life in the West. Mr. Genpo Roshi. Hi, Roshi. Welcome to the Man Talks Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, I'm so happy to be with you. Uh, it's really a pleasure.
0: Excellent. Well, we, we're really excited to, to talk about your life story and, and, and talk about the book that um, is telling this life story. But before we get started, we always like to ask our guests if they can share with us a defining moment. Now, would you have something that you'd be able to share with us?
2: Yes, uh, there are several, but I'll go back to the earliest one that started this whole Uh, trip on the way, or this whole journey of the way, was back in February of 1971, and I was in a relationship, and I was having a difficult time in the relationship, feeling imprisoned and confined and so forth, and I went out to the desert with two friends, and I had a spontaneous awakening while they were off hiking, and in this awakening, I became one with the cosmos, one with everything. And it was so profound, it transformed my entire life from that moment on. And it's never been the same uh, since. It got me pursuing how to help others awaken or have a, a realization of what this life is. And also, uh, I became a Zen student at that moment uh, and started uh,
1: pursuing Zen and sitting meditation. Wonderful, wonderful. It's, I mean, it's quite the journey. I've read some of your work, and and I'm really excited to have you on on the call today. But I'm just uh, hoping that you can give our listeners a little bit more background into you know what what you do and on on a daily basis, and and you know what it must be like to practice Zen and and Buddhism. And so, if you can just give them a, a little bit of an overview.
2: Well, you know, at this point in my life. Uh, what I love to do is I sit or meditate during the middle of the night. Usually whenever I wake up, it can be anywhere from, say, 12 a.m. until 5 or 6. And I'll sit for a couple of hours very comfortably in a chair, no longer in a full or half lotus position on the floor. Uh, but I plant my legs firmly on the floor and back straight but not stiff. And I relax, and I have no preference or judgment of my sitting, whether awake or asleep, aware or unaware, uh, attentive or inattentive. And I just completely relax down to a cellular level, actually, where... I'm not chasing anything. I'm not seeking anything. There, there's no goal. There's no aim Am I sitting. I'm not trying to do anything, but just sit there and really enjoy just being totally present and relax, relaxing. And it has a profound effect on me, which is I've never been happier in my entire life than these last couple of years. Just joyful. And of course, Buddhism is all about becoming happy and suffering less. But I spent the first 40 years from 1971 until 2011, where I was studying in a more traditional and teaching in a more traditional Zen way, uh, very monastic. Uh, I had a Zen center uh, here in Salt Lake City. I had previous to that in Oregon and Maine and in Europe. I established the Kanzion International Sangha, which sangha means community, of well over thousands of people throughout the world. I have something like 16 successors in Zen. And then in 1999, I established the Big Mind process, which, of course, uh, if anybody looks it up, has been claimed to be one of the most profound uh, all Upayas, skillful means of helping people awaken, uh, ever discovered. And so I practiced until 2011 in a very traditional way. Then I had what I call my great fall, which has been probably the greatest challenge and gift of my entire life. Because I spent the past five and a half years self-reflecting and going much deeper into what created my own unfaithfulness to my wife, caused for my own downfall. And I think that if I hadn't had this fall, I wouldn't, well, of course I wouldn't be where I am today, but I wouldn't be as happy and as fulfilled as I am today. It's like the whole journey to the top of the mountain uh, it's filled with challenges, and there's rewards, and there's wonderfulness. But what I found is, at least in my own case, my own ego became inflated with all the success. Uh, you know, I was having rooms full of 400, 500 people at a time when I would give a workshop, or even in, uh, in the Netherlands. Once a year, I would hold a retreat and there would be four or 500 people attending these retreats for 10 days, which is kind of phenomenal. And all the success, I didn't realize it, but it caused me to become somewhat inebriated or drunk in the power and success I was finding. And if I had had twenty twenty hindsight beforehand, I would have known I was I was heading for a great fall, and I kind of knew it. I kind of felt that something was going to pull the plug or pop the bubble. You know, it was like my balloon became quite inflated, and it just took a pinprick and popped the whole thing. And what I found was that the ego inflation didn't bring happiness. It actually brought stress and burden with all the success and trying to keep it all up. You know, uh, I was bringing in large sums of donations because of the work I was doing. One of them was called the five, five fifties where five people would come for five days and they'd each donate a sum of $50,000 to our getting the word out and our, um, bringing big mind out into the world you when know, i discovered big mind in 1999 and this process really allowed people to have not only an initial awakening very spontaneous and very quickly but also not only to move on a level of where they were having experience but also on a more profound level where they were actually moving ahead in their life and their practice in uh, a very healthy way So that all popped in January 2011. And what I saw was the ego doesn't bring real happiness. You feel good, or at least I did, about all the success and the way I could empower others. But the failure or the fall brought personal happiness and joy and humility to some extent because I saw myself as a failure Uh, and I saw myself as inflated. And I started to work on deeper issues I call shadows in myself and came to terms with parts of myself I never would have looked at or come to terms with as long as I was on the rise, as long as I was expanding and uh, being so successful. So it's actually been a great thing. It's like when someone has cancer and you say, well, how was the cancer? Well, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I'm so glad I went through it, but I wouldn't want to do it again. (laughs) Uh, I wouldn't want to go through this again ever, you know, but it's really changed my whole way of being. I feel
1: quite transformed because of the fall. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people you know, I I think can relate to that on many different levels, but also, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot there that you just covered in terms of your past, um, and, and, you know, your teachings and all those pieces. But I think what I would love to just unpack first before we kind of talk about, you know, your, your journey and, and maybe the, the story in the book that you've, that you've released, I would love to dive into the big mind process. Because I know for a lot of people, you know, maybe some of the listeners out there, they haven't heard of it, uh, and maybe just what you talked about piqued their interest. So I'm familiar with the process, but I was wondering if you can unpack it for our listeners and, and kind of dive into you know the big mind and big heart uh, and, and sort of uh, the analogy that you use to explain the, the big mind process before we move forward.
2: Yeah, I'd be very happy to do this. You know, all of Buddhism is founded on the principle that we are all Buddha. And inherently within us is the Buddha. And that's fundamentalness of Buddhism, that we are all a living Buddha, but we haven't yet awakened. So, you know, I could do it with you, and the listeners could follow in a very short uh, kind of piece, synopsis, of what the big mind process is, and we'd like to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so what I'd like to do, uh, and I'm asking, you and the listeners, if I might speak to the one within, the one within you, that is already awakened, but hasn't yet been fully realized, or fully awakened to. In other words, the self hasn't realized or awakened to the fact that you, the awakened one, are already inherent, already internalized within. That you're there, completely whole, but the self hasn't realized you yet. So if you would allow me to speak to the awakened one that has not yet been awakened to. So all you have to do is repeat that I am the awakened one, but he or she hasn't awakened to me yet. Okay, so now just be the awakened one that's still not yet realized by the self. The self hasn't really awakened to the fact that you are ever-present, are here. And I would like you just to tell me what you're experiencing, even though you're not fully realized yet, what it's like as the awakened one to know, for the self to know you're here, and that you have an ability to speak to me as the awakened one.
1: I definitely experience uh, a presence in like different parts of my body in terms of like an awareness. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so almost like a, uh, you know, in 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 my in my chest, I guess. And yeah, I, I have a, I have an experience of ex- experiencing myself in different parts of my body opposed to just my mind.
0: I, f- I feel it in the front of my sort of forehead. Okay.
2: So look and see how you manifest in and through the self that you're here, but he hasn't yet awakened to the fact that you're present. He hasn't yet, or she, for our listeners, hasn't yet realized that you're present. How do you manifest? As in how do we bring it forward? Yeah. I mean, you're not yet known. Hmm. Completely. I mean, I, maybe the self has realized you. I don't know at, over time, but you're certainly not fully realized. You're certainly not fully awakened. So how do you manage? How do you come out when you're not yet acknowledged? When you're not yet realized?
1: Mm, presence and continuing to come back to the the sensation or the the awareness of that. Okay. I guess I, I'm, I'm just uh, I'm just pulling, pulling that out. <laughs>
2: Is there any any yearning on
1: your part or on his part, the self's part? I would I would say more uh I would say more like space for self uh in terms of like more inner reflection and, and meditation. uh uh-huh. More more connection to the piece that's that's already there.
2: Good. What would be really nice for you? What would
1: you appreciate from the self what would you want from the self that's a good question i feel like potentially i think what 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 arose there was uh, a deeper sense of of wholeness i'm not too sure if that explains anything but
2: it does it does it means a lot what else would you appreciate from the self would you appreciate the self to acknowledge you would you appreciate the self to realize that you're here,
1: mm. yeah, for acknowledgement and also uh, not just acknowledgement of presence or being here, but acknowledgement for the gifts and the and the work. Beautiful. What what are those gifts that you offer, and especially if you are fully realized, fully awakened to uh, the gift of bringing people together in a in a space, the gift of communication beautiful keep going Mm -hmm. gift of connection yes yeah what is that connection i mean you
2: use the beautiful word connection what is that connection from your perspective not from his not from yourself but from your perspective what is this connection you're
1: referring to Mm, the gift to self but also the the gift of connection like connection to other people to really see other people
2: Uh uh-huh Okay, let's imagine now that you're fully acknowledged, that you're fully embodied, that you're fully empowered as the awakened one by the self. Just imagine what that's like. Just imagine. Visualize. If you were empowered, fully awakened, fully embodied by Him, mm-hmm. what's it like?
1: What do you experience? I feel like a, a deeper level of acceptance, of self acceptance, and also more willingness to give freely. Yes. And. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah, more willingness to be even more open with other people, but also maybe not from a space of needing anything in return from them. Very good. Not looking for something in return, just giving. Mm -hmm. Very well, keep going. Also coming from a space of just a deeper understanding of a sense of purpose. Right. Yeah, letting go of, of just... The, the constant questioning, there's okay. sort of less, less of a need for the questioning and the doubt. Very good. Yeah. Very good.
2: Now, I'm going to ask the self to fully own, embody, and empower you. Not as a visualization, but that you're fully owned, embodied, and empowered as the awakened one. And so I'm going to ask you to shift now to the one who is fully owned, embodied, and empowered Make a mental, even a physical shift where you're sitting. And now you are the fully awakened one, owned, embodied, and empowered to be the awakened one. And just see what that's like. You are the fully awakened
1: one, owned, embodied, and empowered to be who you are. Uh, Yeah, so I am... The fully awakened one. I am the fully awakened one. Owned, embodied, and empowered. Owned, embodied, and empowered. To be who I am. To oh, be okay. who I am. Now just sit with that for a moment.
2: Just be with it. What it's like for the to completely acknowledge and embody you as the
1: awakened one. Mm-hmm. There's a certain um, grounded strength to it, like a very calm, strength right almost like settling the water in a in a pond where it's just like smooth yes yeah and very very centered in terms of from a physical standpoint but also an emotional standpoint
2: what kinds of things are no longer there that
1: were there before you were realized and owned and embodied for him for the self I'd say that there's less anxiety just yep. about general there's a yeah, there's there's a quieting of the mind, so there's less anxiety or or nerves around details or things that need to be done or tasks. That's right. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Less fear about outcomes. I tend to focus in on outcomes and that seems to have dissipated quite a bit. Right. What else? Uh, Letting go of judgment, I'd say that there's a lot less judgment there as well.
2: Very good. What about preferences?
1: Yeah, that seems to uh, shift quite a bit as well in terms of just uh, a relaxing of, of preferences, if that makes sense. That's right.
2: Okay, we're going to stop the exercise now. This was just to give our listeners a, a sample, of course, of what it is. And why this works, I'll just go into a little explanation. So we've known for 2,500 years that all of us are awakened, and yet we haven't realized it. And what the Buddha did 2,500 years ago, he sat under the what's called the Bodhi tree, sat under this beautiful tree for seven days, and on the morning of the eighth day, he glanced up and he saw the planet Venus. And he had a profound awakening where he realized he was the awakened one. And we are all that. And it's not like we are one of the awakened ones. The realization is I am the awakened one. Because at that level, there is only one. And that one is the whole universe, the whole cosmos. So it's not like I'm one of the awakened ones. I am the awakened one. And he realized that. And he sat there for a very long time, I think it was 49 days longer, just trying his best to comprehend what had just happened. Because it's so profound to realize all of a sudden it's like you've been going in one direction, which is basically the direction we're all going, where we're trying to find security, and a good life, and to, to feel successful, and you know, to make money and provide and all these things. and nothing wrong with that, but that's the direction we're going. And all of a sudden, he found himself looking the other direction or going the other direction where that wasn't the important thing. The important thing was waking up to the fact that everything is perfect, complete, and whole as it is and that there's absolutely nothing lacking and nothing missing. It's like... There's a a story that is a very old story about a woman who had two children and she didn't get out much because she was taking care of the kids. She was a single parent. And one day she was invited to a birthday party of her best friend. And so she decides I'm going to get a babysitter and I'm going to really indulge myself and I'm going to go to the party that hadn't been out in months. So She goes to the party but you know, because she hadn't been out in so long. She kind of overdid the drinking, and she got rip-roaring drunk. And she staggers home, and she falls into bed and goes to sleep, and she wakes up the next morning. Well, the kids were kind of upset with their mom for abandoning them for the night, leaving them with a babysitter. So they decided to play a trick on her, and they turned her vanity mirror around, so when she got up and she was staggering and kind of you know hungover, she goes and looks into her, her mirror and she can't see her head. And she starts screaming, I lost my head, I lost my head. And she starts running all around the bedroom and the house looking for her head and crying, I, thought, I lost my head, I lost my head, help me find it. And the kids are laughing and ignoring her, you know, and she runs out and she looks outside and she looks all over the yard. She can't find her head. So she goes back to the party and she demands from her best friend, help me find my head. I lost my head. I must've lost it here. I can't find it in my house. You know, I must've lost it at the party. And her friend says, well, you're insane. You're crazy. And you haven't lost your head. It's right there on your shoulders. No, 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 I've lost my head. And so finally, her friend ties her to a chair with some rope and says, you haven't lost anything. You're going to kill yourself. You're going to hurt yourself running around like this. You're, you're you're insane. And she keeps telling her, you haven't lost it. You haven't lost it. But this woman doesn't believe her because with her own eyes, she saw that she was missing her head. So finally, the friend slaps her really well across the face. She grabs her head and she cries out, you've hurt my head, you've hurt my head. And then she realizes, I have my head, I have my head. And then she's all elated. She's just so happy and joyful, she had found her head. And she's screaming, I found my head, I found my head. You know, and the, the friends says, oh my God, you're still insane. And she leaves her tied up for some time until she finally calms down and relaxes. And she's over this, feeling like she has found her head and that this is really such a profound thing. And she calms out enough, eventually the friend lets her go home. She goes home, and at first she's all excited that she had found her head, and she tries to talk her, her family and friends, uh, neighbors, into looking for their head. <laughs> you know, that this is so profound. If you think you're missing it, you've got to find it, and so, so, so it's such a great thing. And then she realized how stupid this is. And eventually she just calms completely down and just goes back to being a great mom and taking care of her kids and doing the everyday chores. And all this was just kind of a, a great memory of an experience she had at one time of the delusion that she had lost her head and then the delusion that she had found her head. And now she could just live her life at peace. And very happy and very joyful. And this story is actually told by the Buddha 2,500 years ago in the Lotus Sutra. And it's analogy of what we go through when and if we realize something is missing or something is lacking in our life and we feel caught and chained and we don't realize that we ourselves have the key to that chain. We go through this process of searching and seeking for enlightenment or self-realization, whatever we call it, for peace, for liberation, for joy. And eventually we have some kind of realization or awakening to the fact that's what we just did, that the awakened one is there, always has been there, it's never been missing. The awakened one is well intact within um, us. And we realize, oh my God, I just didn't realize <laughs> It was there, but first we have to realize it's missing. So the story is we have to lose our head in order to find our head and to find true happiness and peace.
0: And I can imagine that that was what you went through when you had your when you had your um, your sort of your great fall, like you you, you called it. Did you? Uh, how do I word this? Did you know? Did you know that you were? going through challenges at that time, or was it all sort of mindless and, and just a part of your experience? And, and I'm curious what...
2: Well, I knew, of course, uh, many things. One was I knew what I was doing, and I right. knew that uh, there would be a consequences. I knew that. And I actually knew that I was going to have some kind of fall. And I even knew the month uh but I didn't put it all together exactly how it was going to come about but I did know and it was almost like my unconscious intelligence or unconscious wisdom actually was very very the architect or the creator of the whole thing very much and and I do believe that one of the things we realize is that we are The architect of our own life. There's nothing happening where we're victims. There's Mm. nothing happening to us. We're creating every moment. It's called karma, of course. Right. We're creating every moment. It's just we're not conscious or aware of it. We say in Zen we can only be conscious of maybe 25 or 30% of what we're creating, a good 70 to Of what we're creating it's like a an iceberg under the sea, uh and we're not conscious of it, so I was aware of what I was doing, of course, I was aware that something was going to pop uh and in a way, I was riding the wave and riding the high and but there was a lot of pressure, you know we were I was bringing in and our organization was bringing in a lot of money to disseminate the big mind out there to the world we were making all these movies and videos to help and it all cost a lot of money and we're bringing in a lot of money and we're spending a lot of money and it was a lot of pressure on me because even though i had a big support behind me and a great foundation still it was all dependent on my showing up and my doing the work it was a tremendous burden and pressure that i was aware of to some extent you know you get used to a heavy burden you know it's just like you put on weight little by little you don't realize you're carrying an extra 20 pounds or 30 pounds you just carry right. it you lose that weight you know oh my god i feel free and that's what it was like it was like i was building up more and more weight <laughs> and it's interesting it was also going along with my body i was building up more and more weight and all of a sudden it was all gone in a flash in a moment and of course there was a, a great stress with the loss. You know, we all fear loss, and when we do lose, there, there is a sense, uh, a kind of death ex- experience. I really felt like uh, I died in January 2011. There was a, a rebirth over the next five and a half years that allowed me to re-examine myself my motives, my drives, what I was doing, and, which I have. And I realize there are certain things that I don't want again. Like I don't want to be big again. I don't want to grow like I was with thousands of people and so forth. I just want to work with those who want to work with me, stay simple, have a simple life. I've actually moved back to where this whole trip started for me. In uh, Long Beach, California, I left Long Beach June or July of 1971 after my experience in February of 71. I left where I had spent the, well, in the LA Long Beach area, I had spent the first 40 years of my life. At that point, I spent 26 years there. And uh, I left Long Beach, and this July, I returned to Long Beach 45 years later. I feel like I've come full circle, and I love being back, where I hated being there when I left. I found it overcrowded, and, and yeah, just difficult to continue to live there. And um, now I'm back, and I'm just loving being there, it's like full circle.
0: Excellent. So, so Roshi, the, the title of your book is called Spitting Out the Bones, a Zen Master's 45-Year Journey. Now. This whole idea of spitting out the bones, I believe, comes from a, a quote by Zen master, Taizan Mizumi, who says that you have to swallow the whole fish and then spit out the bones. But what does that, what does that mean to you, and, and what can we learn from that analogy?
2: Yeah, well, you know, my whole time with Mizumi Roshi was about that. So I was sitting in a car with my older Dhamma brother, Bernie Glassman Roshi, now Roshi. And we were sitting there, uh, and I was a very young monk, And he was a more senior monk. He was the senior monk. And we were sitting in the car waiting for his son to come out of school. And he said to me, he said, you know, Gempo, our job is to swallow the whole fish, which means that whatever Roshi is teaching, whatever Dharma he's transmitting, swallow it all, swallow it whole. And don't pick and choose. Don't say, oh, this is worth, you know, learning. And this is not. This is worth taking in, this is not. If you sit there and pick and choose, then you're not going to really receive the whole teaching. You've got to empty your your glass, let's say, or your container completely and free the, the glass so that you get under the tap so you can be filled by the teaching and you can't take some and ignore others. And then he said, then we spend the rest of our life spitting out the bones. And he heard that from my Roshi many, many times, and he was transmitting that teaching to me, and so it became, you know, I spent 24 years with my Roshi, and that became my teaching, swallow the whole fish, take it all, and then I can spend the rest of my life, which he died, you know, he passed away in 1995, putting out what is not of value, what is not uh, important, the parts that are maybe less essential and more superficial. And for me, this last five and a half, six years has been another analogy I use in the book. It's like taking all the furnishings out of my home, putting it out on the front lawn, and emptying it right down to the walls, and then taking back the furnishings and the things that are essential, or maybe buying some new things and then bringing in uh, the new stuff, and then throwing away what is not worth keeping. And that's what I've kind of done. I took it right down to the bare bones, in other words, what the practice of Zen is. Uh, right down, I even threw out Zen meditation for a while, about a year, I hardly sat, I sat maybe a half hour a day. And threw it all out, all the forms, all the rituals, Everything that I considered at one point to be Zen, and then little by little since 2011, been taking things back in. So even the way I teach meditation is different than the way I taught it for the first 40 years. It's much more relaxed and comfortable. The key words to me are relaxed and natural. I, I teach people how to sit and meditate in a very relaxed fashion where they're actually leaning back against the chair comfortable and breathing deeply for maybe the ten, first 10 breaths uh exhaling through the mouth and inhaling through the nose even maybe 20 and then allowing the breath to be natural and just arising and falling by itself coming in and going out by itself and really not having preference as i said earlier for or against anything that appears, and not judging one sitting, this is good sitting, this is bad sitting, and just becoming very, very relaxed. And, as I said earlier, right down to a cellular level. And this is not the way I taught it the first 40 years. It was a much more Japanese style. So everything I threw out, and now I've taken back what I consider the essentials. And the three essentials for me are meditation. And I still teach koan practice, which means these questions and riddles that we cannot answer with the rational, analytical, dualistic mind. We must transcend the dualistic mind, go beyond, and yet eventually embrace the dualistic mind, both the non dual and the dual, from what I call the apex of the triangle, where we embrace both corners dual and non dual, self and, and other, and transcend them, go beyond them. So we're not stuck in a dualistic perspective or either in a non dual perspective. And Buddhism is called neti neti, neither this nor that perspective. And so it's it's been one of refreshing
1: the Zen practice that I, I teach wonderful well so much to unpack there <laughs> um and so much to unpack within your book and unfortunately we, you know we only have a, a limited amount of time on on the podcast in order to get into some of these areas and obviously you know f- finding finding Zen and finding this this type of meditation doesn't always happen uh in in a such a short amount of time but I'm wondering if you can maybe give our listeners insight into some simple things that they can take away in order to meditate cuz I think one of the biggest pieces and and in order to start on this journey right cuz I think you know from our listeners we have a pretty wide fan base of people that do meditate half an hour to an hour a day and then we have other people who want to get into meditation and they they see the benefits of this they understand the benefits of it but there's that block of I just can't meditate. I just don't know how to meditate. And I think that, you know, your resources really dive into this in a in a really great way. But if you could give, you know, the the amateur and the the sort of more studious practitioner in this field some insight as to how to deepen their practice, what would you say?
2: Well, one is I would suggest if anybody is having trouble sleeping at night then I would say, and this is what I do personally, I wouldn't suggest if I didn't do it myself, is get up, put on some clothes, I put on some sweats, sit down in a chair, and just sit there following your breath, relax without holding a preference, sit in the voice of non-preference and non-judgment, and just sit there. If you fall asleep, that's great, because that's what you're supposed to be doing at that hour in the middle of the night. And if you don't fall asleep, just continue to just watch your breath and be your breath and sit there and have no preference whether you do fall asleep or you stay awake, whether you're attentive or inattentive, whether you're meditating or not meditating, just sit there, eyes closed, very relaxed. If you fall asleep, great, you know, and then get back into bed uh, or stay there. Sometimes I'll sit that way for two hours and most of the time, I'm not asleep, but occasionally I do fall asleep. And it's like a thin line between awake and asleep, alive or dead. It's like I'm I feel conscious, I seem conscious, but I'm also possibly asleep in a conscious way. So that's one good way, because of course you should be sleeping in the middle of the night, so there's no wrong When you go into a Zen center or a monastery, you're admonished not to fall asleep. And so everybody's sitting there trying not to fall asleep, and they're fighting sleep all the time. With this way of doing it on your own at night, there's no one sitting there admonishing you for sleeping. In fact, it's great to fall asleep because you weren't able to sleep. So that's one thing I would say. The most important thing is don't make anything right because the moment you make a right way to sit, the correct way to sit, you're bringing in the opposite. There's a wrong one. And the moment there's a wrong way, we're going to find the wrong way. We're just naturally always inclined to find what we're doing wrong and being judgmental about ourselves and critical of ourselves. So don't make anything right or wrong. Just sit there, whatever happens, allow it to happen, and just. Don't judge any uh, thoughts that come up, any sensations you have to itch or scratch, scratch your itch, whatever, but just sit there, relax and comfortably. That's that's one important thing that I think I can say. We also have many, many DVDs. I think we have seven volumes that we spent a lot of money and effort on creating that would help our listeners, and they're very inexpensive now. Uh, They used to be much more expensive. They can order them from BigMind.org, and there's enough material there that can bring one quite far in their meditation practice. And the other thing is to give up the idea of meditating uh, and just think of it more as sitting, because meditating somehow implies trying to be attentive and mindful and so forth, which gets in the way. And... As soon as you give up the idea, I must meditate, it becomes so much easier. So don't, you know, just allow yourself to sit wrongly, I call it, sit poorly. Uh, Don't judge your sitting. The more you give yourself the spaciousness of sitting poorly and sitting wrongly and not sitting well, the more relaxed you will become. And the key is relaxation. Maybe relaxation is the secret to life. Hmm.
1: That's a great, that's a great way of putting it. And then, you know, just to, just to start to wrap things up, I mean, we have a couple more questions, but I'm, I'm curious for myself and I think for some of the other listeners as well, um, you know, along your journey and you, you talk about this openly, which I think is fantastic, but you know, as somebody myself who's struggled with infidelity in the past, and I think that it's, you know, a, a pretty big, thing that's you know a lot of guys sort of struggle with or um, have faced at some point in their life and there's a lot of shame that comes along with it and whether it's you know whether it's infidelity or whether it's uh, drinking or drugs or gambling or whatever there there seems to be these issues that pop up in our life that, that you know as men we often don't talk about because it's sort of seen as a as a failure or whatever that that may be and it brings up a lot of shame. Um, but I'm, I'm curious as to how you worked through that with the infidelity and, and then what the lessons were on the other side for you. Cause I think that there's a lot of value in that. Absolutely. I would say this for me, the
2: most important thing, it actually came from my, from my ex-wife. Uh, she said to me, you know, we were on very good terms now. She said to me, have you ever looked at the one who's innocent? And I said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, talked to the vulnerable, innocent child many times. But then I sat that night and I said to myself, let me speak to the one who's innocent. And the moment I did that, I realized I have no right to be innocent. I am not innocent by any means. And so I saw it was very dissolved. Uh, And now I'm talking in a lingo that our readers or listeners may not understand, but it can follow if they read the book and and so on. So I said, okay, so I'm the one innocent, but I'm very disowned. dempo does not understand that I'm even here or know that I'm here. So I went through a process of looking at the one who's innocent, and I owned and embodied and empowered the one who's innocent. And that allowed me to look over there at dempo and say, well, he's not so innocent. In fact, he's done a lot of things in his life. And that's why he's feeling all this shame and guilt and so on. And then I switched roles and I went to the opposite of the one who's innocent. And I just said that. Okay, let me speak to the opposite of the one who's innocent. The one who's not innocent. And that was very powerful because I was able to own the one who's not innocent, the one who's guilty, and take full responsibility for actions and reactions for cause and effect that I had created in my life, and own that I am the architect of it all, that I am the creator of all my karma. And then going to the apex and embodying and embracing both the one who's innocent and the one who is not innocent, and transcending those two, in other words, embracing that I've got a part of me that's very innocent, that's always been innocent, always will be innocent. There's another part that has never been almost from the beginning, Uh, not innocent, and continues to not be innocent, and take full responsibility for cause and effect. And that has been an extremely powerful way to work with what you're talking about, this shame and this guilt which runs our lives.
0: Well, we're so so grateful and lucky that we we get a chance to learn from your experience and and thank you so much for sharing it. Um, guys out there, the the book is called Spitting Out the Bones: A Zen Master's Forty Five Year Journey. Um, you can pick it up wherever your, your books are sold. Campbell, what's the best way for for listeners to to get a hold of you and learn more about you?
2: Okay, they can go to Big Mind, just B I G M I N D BigMind bigmind.org. They can also order the book there, and they can find out my schedule. And I I have workshops around the world, Um, and that's all on BigMind.org. They can also order the DVDs, the books. I think this is the seventh book uh, that I published. And I've already almost completed the next one, uh, which uh, I think is also very, from my opinion, these last two are my best work, especially the one I'm writing right now. So all of that is available on bigmind.org.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, and guys out there, if you want to learn more about man talks, uh, you can go to mantalks.com for more podcasts, blog posts, um, lots of amazing new, uh, posts up there and, and, and more, uh, podcasts, which you can listen to. And of course, please subscribe us to, sub, sorry, please subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher or, or wherever you're down, you download your podcast and never miss an episode. Uh, please of course leave us an, an iTunes and Stitcher review so that you can, uh, get the podcast into as many ears as possible. Uh, thank you so much for uh, listening to the man talks podcast. Catch us next week for another interview as we build better men through conversation, connection, and community together.